Hello, and welcome to Dodecahedron, a podcast by, for, and about roleplayers. I'm Jess. Every week, I come in here to talk about a range of gaming-related topics, from creating a character to running a game and what it all means for people who share my favorite hobby. I may not be an expert, but I do have a pleasant voice and a wealth of gaming experience that I'm eager to share with you. Today, I have brought along Amy... Hi. Who you have heard on other sort like sort of world building esque episodes where Those we are my talked. favorite. I mean, we've talked about magic and currency in oh, the yeah. past. Yep. Today, we're going to go a little bit different, and we're going to talk about fantasy post apocalypse. Woo! So, Amy, for anybody who hasn't heard you before, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yes. I am uh, writing a book, and I sing, and I stream video games on Twitch, and world building is one of my favorite things, and my favorite question is, what if the world... dot dot dot. So that brings us very nicely to why we're talking about what we're talking about. I was watching you stream, and well, at the point this comes out, the other day, (laughs) and currently you're playing through Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild. Yes. Which is such an interesting little post-apocalypse, because unless you're looking for it, it doesn't look like a post-apocalypse. It doesn't. And yet, it is this world in which a calamity, a calamity with a name, happened and pretty much wrecked everything a solid century ago. Yes, and they're still feeling the effects of that. Even beyond. Mm-hmm. But everything else has grown up around it and, you know, is kind of ignored. There are beautiful fields everywhere. There are pockets of civilization where people are making a life for themselves. And even if everything happens to be shadowed by that dark day in the past uh, and they, they currently live with it, yeah. they get by. And I it was striking because I was playing yesterday <clears throat> And I've been playing enough of Breath of the Wild that it feels like I'm one of the people who lives there, considering <laughs> the fact that um, while I was streaming, uh, there was this beautiful vista. And I'm like, oh, and look how stunning it is. And then somebody said to me, oh, and there's Mount Doom in the distance. And I honestly hadn't even seen it. I've gotten so used to this dark, like, smudge of a volcano. Oh, yeah. And this, like, glowing castle that's been, like, possessed that I don't even see them anymore. And I think that really is a testament to how livable that world seems to be. And when I say livable, I mean both in terms of the people who are consuming it and the people, like, the characters who actually inhabit it. Because you really get the sense that everybody's just trying to get on with their lives. You know, you've got all these stables all over the place and these Mm -hmm. little towns where it's just like, people gather, people find each other and they find a way to keep going on. And there's not really time to think about, oh, you know, the castle is swathed in this swirling sentient (laughs) darkness. Because unless you're going into the castle, the sentient swirling darkness doesn't seem to be coming after you. No, and so no one just goes into the castle anymore. And suddenly the world isn't as scary as it used to be. You can have your children running and playing in the streets and nothing is going to happen to them. Yeah. You are going to be fine. You just have to make sure to understand there's this new invisible border around what used to be the castle. And just know that's no-go territory. Mm-hmm. 
That is also one of the things about that game in particular, but about post-apocalyptic settings in fantasy worlds in general. It's like the enclaves of society. Depending on how European and castly everything is built to look, you have a very wildly sliding scale of how walled everything is. Yes. And one thing that Breath of the Wild does that's particularly interesting is they kind of eschew that. There are not walls around the city. The only walls that you really run into are in the big, scary, evil castle. Mm. And it gets this sense of natural openness that makes everything seem a lot more inviting. Like, aside from the town in the desert where they literally don't invite men to go inside. Huh, I haven't gotten there yet. Oh yeah, Gerudo Town. Oh, nice. Uh, Which Gerudos, every time they show up in Legend of Zelda, are a pretty much all-female race. Hmm. And Ganondorf is the, like, first male Gerudo in a millennium, depending on which game you're looking at. Oh, interesting. But that's its own whole thing. Wow. Uh, That's the only, like, friendly town with walls. Everything else is very integrated into nature, and it's built in either, you know, a naturally defensible position, like in this little valley, or on top of a hill, or it's kind of just there. And what's really fascinating to me about that is when you contrast that with other fantastical post-apocalyptic settings, like I don't know if you're familiar with Attack on Titan. No. It's an anime that started up a few years ago, but... The plot is essentially everything that's left of humanity after some mysterious apocalypse is in this one massive walled city, Hmm. and it's got this ring structure. So you've got the inner city that has the biggest wall, and it's where all the important rich people live, and then the second city is just behind the slightly smaller wall, and it's like the place of commerce and the highest population. And the outer wall is where all the agriculture stuff is. But on the outside of all of the walls are these giant, horrendous people-ish things called titans that huh. if they see a human, they'll just eat you. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I don't. I can imagine why you would want to put up walls so that you wouldn't get eaten. Yeah. <clears throat> But there's a very particular contrast between the way that survivors live in these different settings. Hmm. And I think one of the things that I want to get into with the world building side of that conversation is how do you, as a creator or a writer, decide what your vestiges of humanity are going to look like? Vestiges, that's a good word. And when I say humanity, I also mean like, Hey, this is a this is a role-playing game about dog people. Yay! Doesn't have to be humans to be humane. Exactly. So a lot of it comes down to the idea of like what is your threat? So outside of your enclaves, outside of your cities, what have you, the sorts of apocalyptic monsters or whatever can vary pretty wildly. They can. And I think one of the great things is you want to find uh, the boundaries of that threat. Mm -hmm. Is it going to be a threat like in Breath of the Wild where it's pretty self-contained and as long as you don't encroach upon it, it's not going to affect you? Or is it going to be more like 
if you just even wander slightly outside of the norm, there are going to be titans that actively chase you to eat you. I don't know if that actually happens. It does. Yeah. Yeah. So like, uh, or is it going to be something like um, one of my favorite books, uh, Mistborn by Brandon Sanderson? There, mm-hmm. If you go outside at night, there are mists that come and can attack people. That's terrifying. It's very terrifying. And so it's just a matter of like, what are the boundaries? Like, do you need to actively do something in order to instigate an attack? Or just by merely existing in the wrong place at the wrong time, can bad things happen to you? I like that. And I like that for several reasons, but it makes it so that depending on what you're doing, you have to... You have to focus on different levels of being careful. Yes. Which gives your protagonists or your players something very concrete to focus on. Because it's like, hey, as long as we stay within the walls, we're going to be fine. Or like, no, if you don't have electric lights blaring all of the time, like every shadow is a potential murder fest. Exactly. And you know your players, they are curious And they're coming into this foreign adventure. So even if you tell them like, okay, you can go any single place in this entire world, except for this one little pocket inside this deep, dark forest. Oh, they're going to go right to that pocket. And so you just knowing what your players want or what they're looking for, you can tailor this experience towards them so that it draws the most curiosity. Mm -hmm. And if some people, like, you know, if if some of them are very go-getters and are going to go straight for that pocket in the woods, make it the smallest pocket you can find and make it very dark. And if it's going to be someone who's very complacent and doesn't, is not very proactive in the game, just kind of wants the game to happen to them and you need to do a little more work to coax them out, then maybe it should be uh, shadows that eat them. When darkness comes, I don't know, like even in the city, shadows might be encroaching upon the city they originally thought they were safe in. Now, one thing, one thing that I really like is the possibility of kind of mixing those Mm. where, yes, there is the deep, dark pocket where the worst of everything is, but home isn't exactly safe either. So in order to... Well, I mean, like, one of the themes with post-apocalyptic stories, no matter what the setting is, is always, can we get back? Can we rebuild? Yes. So if you give your players something that is a pervasive but centralized threat, you're giving them this sense of, yeah, we can get to the deep, dark patch of the forest and kill the daddy shadow that's controlling all of the baby shadows (laughs) And then all of the bad murder shadows will go away. Maybe. Nobody's actually done it before, so we don't know (laughs) if it'll work. Also, I don't know why I said daddy shadow. I guess I was trying to avoid the whole, like, evil mother trope. Huh. So I went with daddy, which is worse. Yeah. It's okay. We could just call it a god shadow. Yeah. There's a god shadow, and it's the biggest, baddest of all the shadows, and it spawned forth all of these other shadows from its shadowy appendages. Ooh. Yeah, that's, that got weird, too. <laughs> that got weird in an interesting way, though. I'm just imagining the god shadow is actually an octopus. Let's be honest. Octopus are terrifying. They're so smart, though. They're so smart, and that's why they're the perfect uber enemies. Yes. And uh, so now you have these uh, these little shadows, these shadowlings that are coming around. And so you have you have these stakes that are raised mm-hmm. because 
here everything was, and I think this is one of the beauties of a post-apocalyptic world, but you can see what was in the same time as you can see what is. And it should, if it evokes a sense of nostalgia, yeah, for the sense like, oh, like things okay, things are okay right now, but they used to be better. They used to be this, and it's, and it's different, and we can't quite get back to what that was before. It casts like a melancholy air over everything, but that doesn't mean it can't be without hope. That there's no way, you know, we can't not get back to this. That was a lot of negatives. Um, it's always possible we could get back mm-hmm. to what was before, but it's never going to be quite the same. Because it's always going to be scarred by this apocalyptic moment. Right, right. And that's something that I really want to dive into more. And I'm thinking uh, Pugmire is one that you can't get back to what there was before. Because what there was before was the world of man. Mm. Like, it was human people. And now all of the human people are gone. And what you have left is, you know uplifted dogs and cats and badgers and stuff like that and it's you know animal people running around and having this society that is very like technologically akin to basically medieval europe mm-hmm. in the base setting but if you want to go off and make it a little more wild then yeah there's <laughs> literally everything that you can do with that setting to make it differently interesting but this sense of nostalgia for the world that was comes into play at every aspect because the way that magic works in that setting is you find these artifacts hmm. that do things. And it's always something like, yeah, I've got this um, I've got this stick that when I wave it in a certain way, it makes a pattern of light that just becomes a physical object. Wow. And it's like anything along those lines that you can say, oh, yeah, the world of man, however long ago it took, they made this thing and this thing lasted. And I'm trying to understand it. And the more that I understand it, the more powerful it becomes. Hmm. But at the same time, you have these characters who have no actual clue. Like they don't know necessarily what a human looked like Hmm. they know through stories and through like genetic memory and these depictions and ruins of the old world that there was man my stomach is going wild right now (laughs) uh but no one has like interacted with a human in all of recorded history as far as they're concerned right that's really interesting and i feel like it's definitely that sense of knowing something was there but now there is a lack and that you miss it Mm -hmm. and that's the core of nostalgia i think that really gets into this idea of post post apocalypse Hmm. because depending on how far out you are from whatever cataclysmic event is you've got something like you know, the Fallout games where everything is a blasted nuclear wasteland. Yep. And we are still, you know, upwards of almost 300 years later building things out of scrap, which, God, that's bleak. Uh, But then you've got something like Breath of the Wild, where it was 100 years ago, which is enough for, like, 
two generations to have come by, at least of humans, because you've got others there who definitely still remember actually living through it. Yeah. Uh, but people are rebuilding, and they are out there, like, gathering resources and making cities and doing, like, commerce and trading. They're living. They are. There's not as much nostalgia for what was, so much as there is a an impetus to rebuild. Hmm. Yeah. And I think for a lot of your NPCs, that is a great motivation. Mm-hmm. I think your player characters can be let in on the secret that there used to be more. Especially because your players are not a part of that world. Exactly. They're essentially strangers. As much as they might have been a part of that world in whatever backstory they have, mm-hmm. something definitely changed that caused a rift between them and all of the other people who live there. Because they wouldn't be playing this game. They wouldn't be adventurers. You know, yeah. They wouldn't be dungeoneering for no reason. There has to be something that caused them to see mm-hmm. more than they used to. And I think that idea of your players are the ones who are nostalgic for the old world, your players are the ones who know, is a very potent and powerful idea. Because it gives them a lot of reason not to be complacent. It gives them a lot of reason not to stick around and say like, yeah, I could go venture into the deep dark forest to fight the god shadow, but as long as I keep the fires burning at home... I can be a pretty good cobbler. I've got a good living here making shoes. Exactly. That's not an interesting... Well, it could be an interesting game. If if, that's what your game is about, that's an interesting game. But, like, let's be honest. How many of those uh, are out there? There's not a lot of room for cobbler adventures. At least not compared to how much there is for, like, let's go fight an octopus god shadow. Exactly. That's exactly. A, it's a way cooler story. It's a way cooler story. And I think unless your players are craving stability, they're going to get a lot more out of that one. <laughs> Generally speaking, yeah. <laughs> Although now I kind of do want to see, like, how could I make the story about the cobbler in the horrible god shadow world interesting? I mean, honestly, I would love to have uh, some kind of game where you want your players to just settle in a town and help make it prosperous. Like, let them be farmers, let them be cobblers, let them be bakers, let them, like, bring this back up. And the fact that there would be this ever-pressing shadow army all around them would just make it a really intriguing uh, side story. I actually heard about... uh... A Japanese tabletop game recently that kind of does that. It's more focused on travel. Oh. Um, but it is like there's not really combat. It's all about like going from place to place and creating these towns and knowing people. Um I'm gonna see if I can find it real quick. Right, so I found it. Ooh. The game is called Ryutama, and it's basically you know, you you have your party of adventurers, but it's less about going out and like fighting big monsters, and it's more about moving from place to place and creating these relationships between yourself and the people that you interact with. And I think one of the one of the points that was brought up to it when I heard about it um, 
was essentially that in every town you visit, each of your players creates an NPC. Huh. Using that to create one of these, like, slightly more peaceful post-apocalyptic worlds would be fascinating because then each of your players becomes immediately more invested in whatever this apocalypse was and whatever these people are doing about it. Yeah. It it would create this sense of... I almost said this sense of wonder, but that's not exactly right because it's, it's a sense of uh, important mundanity. Yes. Because every person that you're interacting with has to continue living a life. Like, they've got their own... Oh, forgot to silence your phone. I did. Calling you out on it. (laughs) I'm leaving that in. They've got their own things that they're worried about and that they need to accomplish. And you are sort of there for a moment in their lives, and then you move on. Yeah. But the thing is... Every one of their lives is a success post-apocalypse because here there was this grand moment that changed the world so profoundly that it can't, can't recover to what it was before. And so in that way, mundanity is paramount. That is the ultimate victory is allowing each of these NPCs to live a small life because together that overcomes what just happened. I know expressions don't really translate through an audible medium, but I am smiling so big at that idea right now. And I think a big part of it is because, like, let's be real. The real world's getting kind of weird. And um, there's a not tiny chance that we might go through something similar in the next uh, decade or so depending on how things go. And the idea that we could survive and scratch out this nice mundane existence and that that is a victory. It is. It's a victory. So that's a big idea right now. Okay. (laughs) Normally I like to go a little bit longer before we start like getting into the part two Uh, I've been saying it in every episode lately, but if you're just joining me for the first episode of what I'm calling Season 2 of Dodecahedron, the first part of the episode is talking about the idea itself. In this, it's been fantastical post-apocalypse. The second part, which we're about to dive into, handles more the idea of what does a game built around this idea look like? And because I'm here with Amy and... Because neither of us are, like, super well-versed in a whole bunch of different games. We're going to focus a little bit less on what systems you can find that already do this. And I think, like, deep dive into world-building our own setting where this, like, the stuff we've been talking about matters. Yeah. So if you want to take whatever we talk about and put it into your own game, uh, definitely let us know about it. Hit me up on Twitter at PodcastDodeca or send me an email at uh, dodecapodcast at gmail.com. Let's get into it. Let's do it. So I think the first thing to figure out when you're dealing with a post-apocalypse is what was the apocalypse? Yes. 
Do we want shadow monsters? Let's talk about shadow monsters. Where did the god shadow come from? I think the god shadow came from another planet. All right. Alien Straight invasion. Up, like, alien eldritch horror nonsense. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. So so someday this uh, cataclysmic crash, perhaps, or maybe it was a quiet crash. Something came. Mm-hmm. Maybe it was purposeful. Maybe it was accidental. But something came and out, out of it emerged this god octopus shadow. All right. I feel like if you're going with this tentacular, shadowy, godlike being, it should just be straight up unknowable, like Eldritch style. Love it. Lovecraftian. Let's do it. To the extent where I think a big part of why it was an apocalyptic event was that anyone who tried to go in and deal with it was just not properly equipped and ended up creating more problems than they could possibly solve. Hmm. Um, did you see or hear anything about Bird Box? Uh, I just know the very, very most basic premise, but I don't know anything beyond it. So the very basic, most or most basic premise is the part that I really want to get into because it does this idea of unknowable terrors actually pretty well in the sense that they never show you the monsters. Great. They only show you that people who look upon them you know, reasonably sane people are stricken so horrified that their first reaction is an insatiable need to kill yourself. That's interesting. And it reminds me, actually, I don't know if you know Annihilation at all. Yes. But it also reminds me of of the this Area X, which is this mysterious thing that mm-hmm. they keep throwing scientists at in order to discover it. And nobody really ever comes out the same they're changed, usually for the worse. And I feel like combining Bird Box with Annihilation with this octopus god might give us the right kind of tone for what our world wants to be. Absolutely. And I think that making it that sort of like, looking upon it will break you sort of Lovecraftian monster means that isolating the god shadow in this deep, dark part of the forest or whatever. And, you know, maybe the forest wasn't always a forest. Maybe it was, like, Berlin. And that's where this thing fell. And congratulations, all of what used to be Germany has just been reclaimed by the Black Forest, and now it's just this massive old-world jungle. I think that's fascinating, because think of all the cool ruins that you would find inside. Oh, absolutely. And you can really, like, you can stick it anywhere, depending on what aesthetic or what kind of people you want your survivors to be yep. but I'm not gonna front we're both white folk let's keep it in either america or europe for our discussion right now yeah and i think you know throwing it into europe gives us a lot of interesting themes i agree especially this idea of this mundane pastoral life yes so you've got this horrible god shadow deep in the middle of the continent And you are out in, let's say, what used to be Spain. Sure. I think what's interesting now is knowing that there's this entire forest that's now sprouted up over the uh, couple centuries, let's say. Yeah, I feel like a couple of centuries is long enough that people can generally get back to where they used to be. And you have to start thinking, though, like, what would be the repercussion you know, what if the world was consumed by this god 
and started, or I should say this country was consumed by this God Mm -hmm. and now it's just forest. And that immediately puts into my mind, like, well, we're back into the age of fairy tales. It's like Grimm's all over again. Oh my God, it absolutely is. Because here we've got this deep, dark forest and you don't know what's going to come out. We don't know what form these shadows take. I kind of, if you take the annihilation respect, like, prospect and you have these scientific organizations that are trying to throw in their best people but what just comes out are more shadows it makes me think that something about encountering this god actually turns the people into shadows i like that and that could be something like that's just me if i were the dm for this campaign that's just what i would secretly know is happening but i wouldn't tell that to my players right because that's part of the mystery that you want them to uncover over the course of the campaign yes And maybe that's, like, depending on how often you play, maybe that's 30 or 40 sessions in. Yeah, yeah. Because that's the sort of thing that, oh, wait, you mean my grandmother from my backstory who was one of these researchers and went into the forest and was never seen again is the not exactly hostile shadow that's been living outside of my house my entire life? Yeah. Oh, man, that's great. That's great stuff. Might be the best off-the-cuff thing that I've ever come up with. (laughs) It's good. And it just, you know, it really, automatically, if you're borrowing from, like, you know, Grimm's fairy tales, that kind of tone and setting and scenario, Mm -hmm. it really opens up the realm for a lot of one-off sessions. Absolutely. So, you know, all of a sudden, here you are fighting what seems to be this big bad wolf, and it could even have, like, Red Riding Hood, Red Riding Hood overtones. Um... (laughs) But instead of a wolf, it's a shadow. Oh, that's... I love the idea of the shadows taking different forms depending on, like, what they used to be or what it needs to be in the situation. And maybe, you know, maybe the wolf was a wolf before or maybe it was a very particular kind of person. Maybe. Because there's also this sense that You know, there are, what, 7 billion people on the planet right now in whatever fantasy world you set this in. You know, adjust as you need to. But this sense that what is left is a fraction of what there was before. Yes. And what there was before is not actually gone. Yeah. That adds a sense of hope in a certain way. Because if you want to take it in that direction, then your players could find a way to reverse what happened and they could bring all of those people back. It also adds a sense of horrifying despair because if they can't, then you don't actually even get the release of death. You become the monster that you were fighting against. That's pretty horrifying. Oops. <laughs> Oops, all terror. <laughs> but, you know, and there you go. There, There's a way to have this, you know, eldritch horror octopus god that's a shadow. And you have a mystery surrounding it that actually doesn't involve knowing what the shadow god is. You never mm-hmm. actually need to define that if you make everything surrounding it a mystery as well. Absolutely. Because satisfying your, your players with the knowledge of that surrounding mystery means they probably won't press further and try to figure out... Because there are just some things in this world that are unknowable. Yeah. Well, and I think the idea that as much as you can figure out about where it came from or what it is, you still can't actually know it. 
Exactly. That's very compelling. Like what? Is it a fifth dimensional being? I don't know. Could be. Is it actually not? Maybe maybe the shadows are just the ghosts of people, but the people themselves step into the shadow and find themselves in a wormhole to somewhere else. Like, I don't know. You can do so many things with this premise. I think the thing to really focus in on in terms of like actually creating a playable setting is what you said about following the fairy tale route. Because then you've got this and I'm going to say it again, this pastoral sort of uh, technological level where people are generally provided for, like they can take care of themselves as long as they're in their little villages and their enclaves and their homes and everything is pretty okay. You know, you keep a fire going or maybe you keep the generators running depending on what level of tech you want to have. Yep. But as soon as you walk into the forest things get weird. Mm -hmm. And maybe it's that humanity itself, in whatever form you want to have it, keeps the monsters at bay. The, the things out there don't want to come in where society has rebuilt. Mm. But as soon as you leave that embrace, you are saying to the things out there, come at me, bro. Yeah. And if that's not enough for your players to draw them into the forest, then maybe there's been a breach in one of the safe enclaves. Yeah. And some part of civilization's fallen there, and the shadows are overrunning and they're getting stronger. And that adds a little bit of timeliness and a pressure of a deadline of this can't last. Oh my god, yeah. This is not sustainable. You actually need to have heroes go out and attempt to figure out what's going wrong. Well, bringing it back to Breath of the Wild for a moment, that's the whole reason that game happens. Is because, like, Link wakes up because things are starting to get bad again. Like, the monsters are getting stronger. Things are getting more dangerous. Calamity Ganon is pushing back against the barrier that keeps it contained. Your heroes, your players, can be that group that's like, hey... Uh, we just got a carrier pigeon from, like, what used to be London, and the last survivor says that all of the lights just went out Whew. for no reason, and now everyone's dead. And now we've got to figure out why, what changed, and how do we stop it from getting here, too. That's fascinating. I think that's a great premise for a world. Damn. Every time we do this, every time <laughs> I come up with some, like, setting, I'm always like, now let's play it. <laughs> yeah. If any of you do end up uh, being inspired by this and play it, let us know how it goes. Absolutely. And um, I think I'm going to do a little bit of work on this myself. Sounds good to see, me. See what I can come up with for it. <laughs> oh, my gosh. This has been fun. Yeah, it has. I think I don't mind this being a little bit shorter of an episode because we packed a lot of fun stuff into there. We did. Before we go, do you have anything that you would like to plug? Like, you want you want to shout out your stream or anything like that? Or maybe somebody else's? Any, like, cool thing you've been looking at or reading that you think the listeners might like? No, I'll plug my stream. Uh, you can find me on twitch.tv slash jasbellior. 
uh, where I actually do play a lot of post-apocalyptic video games. Yeah, you went through, um, weren't you playing Fallout recently? Fallout New Vegas. We've got some Sunless Skies going on. And oh, is that post-apocalypse? Not really, but you know, it feels like it. It's it's post-post-post-apocalypse. Oh, nice. So it's it's pretty meta based on Fallen London, which is post-apocalypse. But yes. then there's Sunless Seas, which is post post and then now it's on the sky so it's it's like three posts but it's still really fun there's still a lot of stakes and there's a lot of darkness i like it yeah unique world building so yeah check out uh jess Bellior on twitch or if you want you can follow dodecahedron on t- uh, twitter at podcast dodeca and like i said before if you like what you heard and you want to use it send me an email of how that goes. Or if you have better ideas, I would love to hear it. Uh, You can send that to dodecapodcast at gmail.com. I think that about does it for us. Great. So, from all of us here at Dodecahedron, thanks for listening. We look forward to seeing you on our next adventure.